You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. And welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, millions of Americans vote in the nation's crucial midterms today. The NBC News analyst Mark Meredith will tell us what's at stake. While people talk about democracy as being a core issue, people mean different things when they say say that they think democracy is under threat. So you may even have people voting for democracy, but voting voting for two different candidates. Monocle's Carlotta Ribello will be reporting from COP27. We'll get the day's business news and a bit later on today's programme. Uh, Kernoa's um, off. Uh, Mia goes and yes, Kernoa Gore is off. No, me neither. We'll be exploring attempts to protect and preserve Cornish and other minority languages. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Millions of Americans are voting in the midterm elections with the balance of power in Congress at stake. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack joins us now for the very latest. Chris, can you tell us what's at stake in this election? Well, there's there's so much at stake, frankly, uh, Georgina. I mean, first of all, there's just the, the traditional reason why these elections matter, and that is for control of Congress, the two houses of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Whoever wins tonight, if, if Democrats win, then uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, will be able to enact more of his agenda over the next two years. If Republicans win, that will essentially come to a stop. But then also, I'd say this election particularly, there's been a spotlight on control of states as well. The state legislatures, the governors of states, that's been spotlighted in part because of the uh, the end of the Roe v. Wade ruling, uh, allowing abortion, a federal right to abortion in uh, across the country. That sort of put a spotlight on states who will be able to enact laws on whether abortion is allowed or not going forward. And even in terms of the stakes, the control of the elections themselves is at stake in these midterms, arguably, because there have been various candidates, particularly on the Republican side, who still question the results of the 2020 election. Um, They are running. They are also running for positions like Secretary of State, which is a position that essentially controls how elections are run in states across the country. So that is something very key. And then just generally, I would say, Georgina, it feels like something of a turning point, I suppose, uh, when you talk to Democrats and the abortion ruling, but also the threats to democracy sort of heighten Democrats' concerns about where this country is headed, what's going to happen in the next few years. And Republicans, especially Trump supporters, are equally convinced and enthusiastic and believe they need to win to sort of wrest control of the country back, having taken it once under Donald Trump for four years. They feel that that, all of their priorities are sort of slipping away again. Um, So there really is, in that sense, a lot that you feel in the, the energy. There's a lot at stake in this election. Now, of course, we've been hearing from President Joe Biden, as one would expect to, but also former President. Donald Trump has been weighing in. What have they been saying? Yeah, so I mean, well, when it comes to Donald Trump, the last 24 hours, frankly, have all been about what he has 
not said or been stopped from saying, I, sh I should add. Uh, there was a lot of speculation, apparently, from sources, media sources. Uh, Donald Trump had told some advisors that he was wanting to, wanting to announce his own candidacy for 2024 uh, last night at a rally in Ohio. There was then a frantic effort by various Republican uh, strategists and officials to convince him not to do that, to uh, keep the spotlight on the midterms. And that says something I have to say about, you know, you, you asked about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump being on the campaign trail. They're both out there. But funnily enough, both sides, I think, when you talk to strategists, believe that those two people help the other side more than they do their own party, because uh, Donald Trump, of course, is this lightning rod of, of criticism and popularity, depending who you speak to. And then on the other side, Joe Biden has very low approval ratings at the moment, and Republicans very much believe that he almost helps their cause. But both have been out. They've been in swing states. They've been crisscrossing the country. Both of them spent a good amount of time also over this very last weekend in Pennsylvania. That's where I've been spending a lot of time where I will be on election night. And earlier, I did speak with Mark Meredith, who you heard a little bit from at the top. He's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a senior analyst for NBC News on election night. We spoke at Quorum. It's a cafe and sort of entrepreneurial space in Western Philadelphia. And I began by asking him why Pennsylvania has become such a battleground state. Pennsylvania is so evenly split between Democrats and Republicans that in any statewide race right now, without a popular incumbent, either party can can win that seat and get the most votes. And so whether it's you know the governor and Senate race this time around or the presidential race in, in 2024, this is going to be a, a toss up for the years to come. What singles out Pennsylvania in your mind? What makes it that state that is so tied between the two parties? Part of it's just the geography that we have two large cities separated by a large number of, of more rural voters. And so you have what now are the bread and butter Democratic constituencies and the urban voters. You have what are the bread and butter Republican constituencies, the far exurbs of those cities, plus the more rural areas. And just the math adds up so that they're about of equal size. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. We are at a cafe in western Philadelphia, not too far from the historical home of American democracy. And I did want to ask you, when you look at this election, some of the candidates, some of the rhetoric we've heard, to what extent do you feel like American democracy is actually under some kind of threat? For those of us who, who live in Pennsylvania, like myself, how elections get conducted moving forward are going to hinge so much both on what happens in the gubernatorial election here and also in the state legislative elections that are happening at the same time. We are just trying to like survive with our election system here right now. I can't count how many lawsuits have been filed in the last four years over various provisions of our election law. We really need some new laws to be put into place and some clarity about certain elements of how elections get run. And you probably couldn't come up with two people who have more different visions of how elections should be run than our gubernatorial candidates between Josh Shapiro and Doug Mastrano. And in Pennsylvania, the governor gets to pick the secretary of state, who's the chief bureaucrat in charge of conducting elections. And so the outcome of these elections will say a lot about how future elections are run in this state. Do you get the sense that voters understand that? It does feel like the priorities of voters 
are elsewhere at the moment. They may have been more on democracy a couple of months ago, but at the moment it's more about the economy, frankly, than it is about democracy and these kinds of stakes you're describing. Yeah, so it's so hard to vote on a single issue right now because there is so much at stake in, in these elections that you have how elections are going to be conducted, but you have abortion, you have the economy, and a host of other issues. And so, you know, if you're a voter right now who's feeling one way about abortion and another way on democracy, you might have to make a choice about which way do you go. And I think that's the tricky thing about trying to have these these elections with, with, with so much at stake. And, and I do agree with your general point, which is while people talk about democracy as being a core issue, people mean different things when they say, say that they think democracy is under threat. You have people on the left who are worried about voter suppression. You have people on the right who believe Trump's false narrative about the 2020 elections and how they were stolen. And so both think that democracy is under threat for, for different reasons. And so you may even have people voting for democracy, but voting voting for two different candidates. You're going to be working on election night, also for NBC. What are you going to be looking for? And also, what what do you kind of expect? It, it seems like many people are now tamping down the expectation that we'll actually have a strong result on election night, given mail-in ballots and, and some of the closeness of these races. I think turnout will be what I'm looking for. I think if you read the polling in its totality right now, both Pennsylvania and really nationwide, you see a similar pattern, which is Democrats are going to be voting for Democrats and Republicans are going to be voting for Republicans. And there's going to be relatively even splits among independents, although they may ever so slightly tilt a little Republican, which is typical in the midterm election that the independents maybe swing to the party that's not in charge. Uh, But I think what that means, if you're in an election like that, which side can bring more voters out is probably going to be the side that has a good night. And so I think what I'll be looking for is, are we seeing differential turnout amongst amongst Democrats and Republicans? Because I think if, if that's what we see, that's going to be a sign that that party probably is going to do really, really well if there's big differences in turnout across the parties. But then to your point, I think there may be some races that we don't know the results of, especially in a state like Pennsylvania, where I think it'll be a lot faster than it was in 2020, but there are going to be some mail ballots that, that aren't going to be counted until until Wednesday, most likely. I'm thinking about Arizona, where another state was dragged on for many days in 2020, in part because of they're not going to get through all counting all their mail ballots. I'm also thinking about a state like Nevada, where your ballot just has to be postmarked by election day and can be received to a few days afterwards. And I think in those states, plus a few more yeah, there's a real chance we might not know who the victor is. It may take a few days. And that just also creates uncertainty, I guess. There's already, you are hearing this rhetoric from some candidates challenging mail-in ballots specifically, and given the fact that they will take longer to be counted, I just wonder how that how that will impact the race and how it impacts your communication. If you're also on NBC, how the media have a sort of responsibility to make clear that this could take a while and there's nothing untoward about that. Yeah, I think you know, not only is it not untoward, in many cases it is actually promoting electoral integrity. I think part of the issue you have in in a state like Arizona or Nevada where you have these mail ballots coming in at the end is part of the reason it takes so long to count them is you're just double checking and triple checking and making sure that these late mail ballots that came in that those people weren't also trying to go to the polls and cast a polling place vote on election day. So sometimes the slowness which you know, people will, will accuse of being a way for election officials to, to you know, steal an election is actually a way for them to promote electoral integrity. And so I think hopefully we've learned. I, I, I know 
in Pennsylvania, actually, the local elections officials did learn about process a lot between 2020 and now. And I do think a lot more of the vote will get counted on election night. But yeah, I, I, I am concerned about specific candidates using this vacuum where we don't know the results to try to, especially if they're leading in the results and the evidence suggests that they might fall behind of using that to create this, this false narrative like what happened in 2020. And hopefully the elections officials, the media, the other candidates now sort of have seen the playbook and hopefully they can use that to their advantage to better communicate to voters, help make sure that people understand that what the process looks like and that it is generally trying to make elections more secure, not less. Interesting and really quite alarming observations there from Mark Meredith. Chris, what will you be looking out for tonight? Well, yeah, Georgina, some some alarm there, certainly. I mean, uh, I, I think what I'll be looking at is one, as certainly as Mark mentioned there, turnout, but also just early results from particular states on the East Coast as they come in will already give us a sign of where things are going. New York, even interestingly, has been uh, a case where Republicans feel they will make a number of inroads. If they do that, then this could be a night where Republicans win big. Also, Georgia is, of course, one of the most closely watched races for Senate and governor. Um, That's going to be one that will be extremely closely watched in the early hours of the evening already. And and just generally, Georgina, to your point about about some of uh, Mark's uh, comments there, this is a country that is on edge, frankly, and everyone is watching the conduct of these elections. So I will certainly be looking at that as well uh, tonight, whether there are any signs of impropriety and, and frankly, whether there are any signs of unrest, uh, as, as there are also many people watching. There will be poll watchers from both parties who will be involved in counting in different states. We hope that all of that goes smoothly. You trust in the election officials, uh, it, you know, in the country uh, this time around, at the very least. Um, but that is definitely something that's going to be have to watched have to be watched much more closely than than previous elections, Georgina. Chris, thanks very much indeed. And of course, it's something we'll be watching very carefully here at Monocle Twenty Four. That was Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. Now here's Marcus Hippie in London with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Ukraine's government has said that it would be prepared to negotiate with a future Russian leader, but not Vladimir Putin. It follows press reports that Ukraine's leaders are being privately encouraged to signal that they will hold talks with Moscow. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has accused China of attempting to interfere in the country's elections. It comes as Canadian press reports that intelligence agencies identified a clandestine network of Beijing-backed candidates at recent elections. And finally, researchers say they have found no signs of life in a zone where a purported alien broadcast originated 45 years ago. However, the team behind the study says their methodology will allow them to search for intelligent alien life outside of Earth. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks very much, Marcus. Now, the United Nations Annual Climate Conference, COP27, is currently underway in Egypt. Monocle's Carlotta Ribello is on the ground in Sharm el-Sheikh for us. Hello to you, Carlotta. Now, we last heard from you on The Globalist and your day was about to start. So how was your morning and what meetings did you go to? 
Hi, good morning, Georgine. Well, good afternoon, actually. And uh, yes, it's been quite uh, a good start of the day here. We had um, the start of the second part of the Leaders' Summit. This is when mainly prime ministers have been delivering their speeches to their counterparts. But there was also quite a few interesting events in the morning, particularly as the day began, because of the two hours ahead. The Leaders' Summit is starting a bit later here, so it's more in line with the rest of Europe. I attended the Pacific Islanders Declaration now, this is quite an interesting and very important subject because it's made up by leaders from several of the Pacific Islands uh, in the region and includes members of civil society as well as youth and frontline and, of course, indigenous representatives. And this is really to launch this Kiowa Climate Emergency Declaration, demanding urgent action to stay below the 1.5 degrees, access to climate financing, and of course, the very much talked about implementation of loss and damage finance. You know, when you have certain regions of the world that are getting severely more impacted by the effects of climate change, and we know the Pacific Islands are communities that are, have century-old traditions of being connected to nature. So it is really important to come here and make this statement and to sign this declaration in front of the whole world. Mm. Now, another announcement coming up from today was one made by the US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, that's John Kerry, along with Michael Bloomberg. What did you learn? Yes, yeah, so they launched this uh, subnational climate action leaders exchange. Uh, now, the name might seem like a mouthful, but it's actually quite an interesting support initiative. Now, this is the first of its kind uh, network. The letters of the name uh, come up with SCALE, that's the acronym for it, but it supports city, states and regions in the development and the implementation of net zero and climate resilient targets. You know, this uh, we need to continue to talk about the one point degrees and uh, how they are within reach and the importance, you know, of that small steps taken locally can actually have global impacts. One of the things they're trying to address is to reduce methane gas as well as uh, John Kerry told us upon the announcement. We have an amazing effort taking place with countries, more than 122 of them, committing to reduce methane. And if we achieve a 30% reduction in methane by 2030, it's the equivalent of every single automobile, every single truck, every single airplane, every single ship in the world going to zero by 2030. That's a big deal. It is a big deal and it is interesting to hear uh, Secretary Kerry there talk about uh, how something we might not think has a big impact because we often hear about, you know, the reliance on fossil fuels and other ways we can reduce carbon emissions. But methane also goes a long way. Now, the reason why Michael Bloomberg was there is because this is a joint initiative between Bloomberg Philanthropies and the State Department where together they're committing $3 million to get the project started, 1.5 by each. So the State Department matched Mr. Bloomberg's contribution. And one of the things that he was uh, quite keen to highlight is, you know, he's also the president of the C40s alliance. That's the alliance of uh, mayors and local leaders of cities. And uh, he was keen to highlight how a lot of these uh, statements and a lot of these initially have the better impact and the biggest developments when they happen at local level. And when we talk about methane, for example, a lot of these emissions come from waste management. Waste management is a job of a mayor to make sure they properly dispose of waste. So uh, Michael Bloomberg really highlighted the role of local leadership. Let's have a listen. We've seen how much progress is possible when cities, states and businesses 
take the lead and get the support that they need. And the faster we make progress, the more we'll improve public health, save lives, strengthen the economy, expand clean energy, and increase security. And as we've seen very clearly this year, energy is a critical national security issue. It's in the interest of all nations to develop their own clean energy systems, and cities, states, regions, and businesses can help pave the way forward and build a more peaceful and prosperous future for us and for our children and for our grandchildren. Very interesting uh, piece there from Michael Bloomberg. Carlos, what else is happening this afternoon? So this afternoon, we continue with more leaders' speeches. But in fact, I'm about to head over to the Africa at COP Pavilion. Now, we've highlighted throughout our coverage so far how just important how this is happening back in the African continent and how it has been dubbed by the majority, if not all nations in the region, as Africa's COP, that taking advantage of the location to put their interests and their conversations on the global scale and on the global sphere, which we know that sadly, far too often, do not get heard, these voices. And the Africa COP Pavilion is hosting a few high-level segments. And next up is going to be with the president of Mozambique and what their country is doing when it comes to climate change. So I'm keen to hear that happening this afternoon. And then I'll be heading over to a special declaration that's going to be announced by the Colombian president, Gustavo Petro. But more on that maybe a bit later. Carlotta, thank you very much indeed. That was Carlotta Rabello at the COP27 summit in Egypt. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Let's get the latest business news now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Uh, Ewan, thanks for joining us. At the top of the show, we were hearing about the US midterms. What can you tell us about the state of the country's economy? Georgina, 20 past uh, seven in the morning on the east coast of the US and American voters waking up to another election dominated, not for the first time, perhaps more than in recent years, though, by the economy. A poll uh, of uh, voters' most important concerns has uh, from number five, climate change, gun violence and abortion. But in spots number two and number one, inflation and the wider economy. So the inflation really in focus for voters this year and uh, unemployment near its lowest in decades that would be part of joe biden's pitch the democrat pitch abundant jobs and rising wages at the heart of the story they would like to tell but the return of inflation that ugly number 8.2 percent is a central theme for republican candidates the worst uh, inflation in decades now uh, the democrats do have a strong story to tell on the labor market the national unemployment level near its lowest in 50 years the latest uh, job numbers out of the US last week showed that a very, very slight rise in unemployment, but it did show that businesses are still hiring at a faster than expected pace. And the latest data on job openings, well, that uh, went up as well. So more job vacancies in the US, almost 11 million job vacancies at the moment. So the labour market is very healthy, but Americans are struggling to pay their grocery and rent bills. Uh, Biden's Democrats have uh, sought to pin the blame on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But uh, Republicans point to the $2 trillion American rescue plan, which was passed back in early 2021 with Democrat votes and not on a bipartisan basis. That included stimulus checks for households, expanded unemployment benefits and money for state and local governments. So the Republicans say that massive injection of cash into the US economy has really stoked inflation. Uh, So uh, who wins that uh, debate? 
fascinating to see. Absolutely. Uh, and here in the UK, squeezed consumer spending isn't the only problem facing the retail sector, is it? Yeah, Georgina, spare a thought for uh, two of Britain's biggest supermarkets, as well as fierce competition from German discounters and squeezed consumer spending. Uh, two of the big five supermarkets here in the UK are facing combined interest bills of more than £700 million a year. Fascinating bit of research from analysts at Moody's Investor Services. Uh, that Morrison's and Asda both taken over last year separately by private equity buyers. And as is always the case with private equity, they were loaded up with debt. They piled them high uh, with uh, cheap debt. And of course, it was cheap pandemic debt uh, back in the days of uh, 2021. There was lots and lots of money around at very, very low interest rates. Now that is coming home to roost. As the cost of debt rises, that interest bill has really gone through the roof. Uh, so a couple of supermarkets in the UK facing uh, a big extra cost uh, to their profit margins. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Cornwall is the county at the westernmost part of the southwest peninsula of Britain. It's recognised as one of the Celtic nations with its own language, Cornish. The native tongue began to disappear about 500 years ago as the Anglo-Saxons slowly spread west before being declared as dying out in the 18th century. But 20 years ago, the UK government officially recognised the language, listing it under the European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages in 2002. Well, this has helped spark a resurgence in Cornish and it's been recognised internationally for its successful ground-up revival as thousands of other languages around the world are risk of disappearing. Antonella Soracha is a professor of development linguistics at the University of Edinburgh and also the founding director of Bilingualism Matters. Uh, and she joins me down the line now. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Antonella, how widely spoken is Cornish now and how does the country, how does the county promote the use of the language? Well, I, I, I can't be very precise about the data for Cornish, but I can tell you that uh, Cornish, like all minority languages, is definitely worth uh, maintaining, you know, uh, because it, it's at risk. Um, and we know from research that having more than one language in the brain and in the mind um, uh, is really uh, very advantageous for children and for adults. So there are obvious reasons why all minority languages uh, should be maintained. You know, there is a culture behind every language. And so uh, linguistic diversity is cultural diversity as well. But there are also reasons that, you know, are more difficult to know or uh, discover. And they have to do with the advantages of having more than one language in the brain. This is what we do research about. And uh, some of these advantages are, for example, you know, a better control of attention, uh, the ability to see the other person's perspectives. And, you know, I can't, uh, we can't underestimate the importance of this. And, and so I think you know, any language, regardless of the status, about how many people uh, uh, speak it, all languages are good from this point of view, beyond the cultural importance. But if one is going to expend the time and effort in learning another language, surely it's much more useful to choose one that, that, that is spoken by more than 300 people. I mean, Russian or Arabic over, uh, over, over Cornish or, or, or Welsh. 
Of course, there are instrumental values of particular languages, languages with economic and political power, because this is what makes a language important. But minority languages are all very, very important. So families, parents should be encouraged to continue to speak them to their children, uh, because that's the only way, you know, we can ensure that a language survives. We, we call intergenerational transmission. So if uh, a language is not spoken to the next generation and then to the next generation, that language is bound to die. So uh, there are many good uh, or very good political initiatives, you know, to maintain languages uh, in schools, you know, and uh, and so on. Uh, but, uh, but if this uh, uh, fact doesn't happen, if the language is not spoken to the next generations, uh, then that language dies. Mm. So this is what we're trying to do to persuade, you know, parents and policymakers and educators, and but particularly parents, that uh, speaking the language to the children in the family is of primary importance. And which languages are in need of preservation? I would say all languages are, are in need of preservation. Languages, as uh, you said before, languages are dying at at, at, fanta- at, at, at incredible uh, uh, fast rate. Uh, it has been calculated that there's a language that disappears every two to three weeks. So that means that, you know, it won't be long before the vast majority of languages will disappear with a great loss for uh, for the world um, from a cultural point of view, but also, as I said, from a linguistic, from a, from a cognitive perspective as well. Uh, so uh, we should really invest time, energy and uh, funds to keep all languages alive. I mean, and there is no language that has a particular priority. There are languages that are more in danger than others, uh, obviously more, you know, about to disappear. Um, some languages, you know, have a longer span time, particularly if they have a, a writing system, if uh, 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 if it's possible, you know, to, uh, to uh, uh, teach uh, uh, using them as uh, uh, means of instruction and so on. Uh, some languages are uh, better placed uh, in these respects than, than others. Mm. Uh, finally, I understand you personally speak a number of languages. What are they? Uh, I'm Italian. I'm a native speaker of Italian. Uh, I speak English and French well. Uh, I understand German and I understand my mother's minority language, which was Sardinian. And uh, my mother never spoke Sardinian to me because she thought it wasn't very important. (laughs) So I have a personal reason, you know, to really, you know, engage with minority languages. Antonella, will you say goodbye to us in Sardinian? Oh, uh, oh dear. I, as I said, you know, I don't speak it. I understand it. I understand it, but I don't, I don't speak it well, because my father never spoke it to me. I'll, I'll uh, just do I it can... in Italian. Shall we say ciao? <laughs> ciao, arrivederci, grazie. <laughs> <laughs> grazie mille. That's Antonia uh, Sriracha, who's Professor of Development Linguistics at the University of Edinburgh. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Hull. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time and I'll be back in the studio for tonight's Monocle Daily, which is live at 1800 London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.